technology will not be the one that finally gets you, right? It will be people. And generally, what focus on what is the value you're trying to return, not the technology that's going to do it. Once you focus on the value, think about if you solve the technology problems, how do you actuate that in the company to really drive differential results? Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good morning, friends. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And today I am lucky enough to be joined by Chris Satchel. Chris, how are you? Fantastic. Great to be here with you this morning. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I know uh, you had a late flight from London, so we appreciate you joining us all the same. No worries. That makes me sound far more interesting than I actually am. Like It's like an it's international digital accelerator, but no, it's just a flight back from London. Oh, I love it. So Chris, for those of our listeners who don't know, can you tell everyone a little bit about your current role? Absolutely. So I manage digital and technology for the portfolio at Clayton Dublier and Rice. Your listeners probably haven't heard of us. We are one of the oldest companies in private equity. Been around 40 years. We're a scaled single fund vehicle. So we do one thing really well, which is we like to buy, grow, merge companies and We get most of our returns from growth. So we're a company that's very focused on how we help management teams really grow their businesses. And we get very engaged to do that. And so no credit to me, this happened a long time ago, but our company created the joint operating partner investment partner model, where both sides of the equation, both buying the companies and operating them afterwards are considered equal. And so what I'm doing for the company is creating a horizontal function of technology and digital that spans all our verticals. And myself and my team, we work to help our deal teams, acquire or divest companies. And then we also work with the management teams post-acquisition to try help them accelerate or de-risk our investment thesis using technology. Say that in the broadest terms, people, process, technology, and data. We will do anything we can to help them create a better company. Love it. I'll look forward to diving a little deeper into that. First, though, we'd like to start off our episode with one piece of actionable advice you might look to leave our listeners with today. I think the piece of actionable advice I would leave is focus. So I always tell people, if you tell me nothing about a company, but you'll say it's struggling, I'll put money on the fact that focus is somewhere the root issue. Now, you might have to ask a lot of whys to get there, but that's where I think you'll find a lot of issues. So I would say no matter how critical you think every activity is you're doing, if you really stack rank them and you really focus on the top few, you will get majority of the value. So that is the piece of advice. No matter how 
much you think you've done it, you can probably focus even more. And especially in a climate like we have at the moment, that is more likely to lead to success. That definitely resonates with me. So thank you for that, Chris. So before we get into what you guys are up to at CDNR, I want to talk a little bit about where you started out and how you got to be where you are now. I have a lot of respect and admiration for some of the stuff that you guys have done along the way, not the least of which is your work with Xbox and things of that nature. But maybe you can kind of take us through kind of wherever you want to begin up until where you are now. Well, I think I started about as far away from Park Avenue private equity as you can possibly get, which was growing up in farming country in the southwest of England, where I do work on my family's pig farm every weekend. Other than they both start with the letter P, I think they're about as far apart as you can possibly get. But I had a very misguided childhood. I grew up writing video games and ended up making a career out of that, which finally landed me as CTO of all gaming at Microsoft. So that was helped the team build Xbox 360, build all the software stack and all the developer tools around it, and then went on to lead the teams that define the next generation programs. And then after that, a whole career of really helping companies deliver products and services to market. So I was CTO and head of development for the biggest company in casino entertainment systems in the world. My team's open casinos, all helped operators open casinos everywhere. We built the games on the floor. We built the backend systems. We've probably been to some of them, like Aria in Las Vegas or the Cosmopolitan. After that, I was CTO at Nike. And so really transitioned into helping them build their global E&N commerce practice, link it to the stores. And this was back in 2013. So we were doing things that were super cool back then, but now everybody takes for granted, right? The idea of endless aisle and multi-channel, as we called it. We we're all so excited about it, but really helped do that and then build up the community, the data platforms, products sort of like Fuel Band and Nike Run Club. And after that, went to Comcast, which if you have any international leaders, I know, sorry, listeners, this will completely confuse them because I've noticed that nobody internationally understands what a US cable company does. Fair enough. But as you know, Comcast, NBC, Universal, and IB, Skype, part of the same group. And I was their chief product officer. So from a product perspective, my team ran the $65 billion consumer portfolio. We did the engineering for that as well. So again, we're trying to really bring products to market that were really pushing the boundaries of what you could do with IP distribution, in-home networking, video distribution. And then I did a startup in the food sustainability space, which didn't go quite as I would have hoped, which is why I ended up in private equity afterwards. So that was a good set of learnings for me of how difficult the West Coast VC space can be when you perhaps have a little too much ambition. And again, from what we said at the start of this thing, not enough focus. If there was one thing we did wrong in our company was we just didn't focus enough. Beware VC capital, right? I mean, <laughs> people think it's all sunshine and rainbows once you get that money. And it's actually a good transition into my next question for you, which would be, what's one of the most important things that you learned personally, professionally along that journey? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it? One of the most important things I've learned, I think professionally, I kind of want to cheat and say two, but it's all around the idea of persistence. More than any other thing I've learned everywhere in my life that just being doggedly persistent in your aims, which doesn't mean don't listen to new information. This is not about blacking out everything that you don't like to hear, but just being persistent in what you're trying to achieve will get you to a great destination vast majority of the time. And so I think persistence beats brilliance nine times out of 10. And the other side of that, I would say, always this one served me well, is no matter what you're doing, do a great job. doesn't matter. When I was working in bars, I wanted to be a great bartender. When I was working in a meatpacking factory, it was like, I'm going to be the fastest person at running meat preparation lines. No reason to do that other than why not? You're going to spend your time anyway. But you sort of put that together with persistence as like two sides of a coin. And there, there isn't much in business that won't eventually kind of break you away if you just keep 
trying to do an amazing job for you and your teams and keeping persistent at it, which I know sounds like very low tech advice for disruptive innovation. But you know, at the end of the core of all this is people and trying to get the maximum number of people to do the best thing is really the core of everything we do. Yeah, no, and I think that it's super relevant to innovation because so much of innovation is trying, failing, integrating that feedback and then keeping it moving, right? What you said too reminds me of, and I'm blanking on the name of the book, but basically the, how the Olympic athletes and the best folks, best pianists in the world, they started out where they started out, but that persistence and practice and all of that, that is how they rose, right? And the desire to do a great job. So I think it's great advice. You said it right. I mean, it's really, you talk to anybody that's successful and what I think one of the things you'll find, and this is whether you're trying to build digital innovations, whether you're trying to build teams, whether you're trying to turn a business around, the characteristic is, it wasn't that there wasn't setbacks, it's that they deal with it incredibly well. And they can get the setback, pick themselves up and just go at it again. You see that in the startup space as well. I have friends who are much better at startups than me. Honestly, a couple of months to their companies now that I think once we get through this period will be their big sort of contribution, their big success. Everybody, wow, look at that overnight success. It's like, yes, apart from the fact they did five companies before and they just kept going at it. And so I think behind so many of the brilliant people I've seen and worked with, that idea of just trying again when things don't go wrong is core to how they achieved. You know, I was having a conversation last night with someone about how my biggest moments of personal and professional growth came out of the times when I had the most personal or professional strife. And it was that happening, feeling that emotion, the distress of it all, and then learning from it, and then also choosing to push through it and be better for it, right? Which actually leads me into my next question for you, which would be, is there a time that sticks out in your mind that was particularly challenging that you took something away from or a failure, if you will, that you just you learned a really great lesson from that you'd like to share with everyone? I always will say to people, this might be the hardest thing I've ever done professionally was when I was at Xbox and we, we were building up to launch Xbox 360, we were trying to do things that nobody had done, right? Launch all three major territories, so North America, Europe, and Asia at the same day, fully online console, custom silicon throughout. So it was absolutely full on from all of us for several years to make this happen because we were doing it half the time anybody had did it. That wasn't the hardest thing as it turned out. The hardest thing was at the same time, I got this wild idea that at Microsoft, we shouldn't be two separate gaming companies. We shouldn't have Windows and Xbox with the same set of developers globally we're talking to, the same set of customers, the same set of publishers. And yet we will be completely independent and sometimes a little bit confrontational about each other. And I sort of got this idea that perhaps like Sony and Nintendo are very, very strong competitors and we should spend our time focusing on them. So I managed to convince the divisional presidents, mine was Robbie Back that we should combine these organizations into Xbox, shuffle the deck, and have one combined organization that was everything gaming for Microsoft across all our platforms globally. Great, sensible idea. And eventually, I convinced them. It's one of those, they said, fantastic. So you're just going to go do this, right? And that was a year and a half project that's some of the hardest things I've ever done because you had two organizations that actively were competing against each other and sort of saw each other as perhaps a bit of the enemy. And trying to bring that together and make it a unified organization when every, every decision is scrutinized. Why did this person get placed at the top of a team? Why wasn't it the Xbox person? Why was it the Windows person or vice versa? And the mistake I made was I came in with the mandate. And you know I was much younger in my career. And I came in very strongly with the mandate. I've been told by the divisional presence I can go do this. And I didn't take enough time at the beginning to sort of really ask people like, 
why do you act this way? And what are you trying to achieve? And really understand them before just telling them we were going to go do this thing and the company that sent me off to do it. So I spent about three months very energetically digging myself a hole that I spent the next 15 months digging out of. Now, some of that would have happened anyway, right? It was just hard work putting all of this together. And you have to communicate globally to the publishers and developers and bring all the materials together, merge our conferences. But I really learned that if I'd taken a little more time to build followership on the way in and get people really excited about the end goal, and some were, but I could have done a much better job. And you know, if I come on to thinking about like one of the things I've learned that's been reinforced again and again is like this business is all about people. Technology is inherently a people problem. And I've only ever seen two projects in my life really fail because the technology just wasn't doable. They were both at Microsoft and they were both very far out research things we were doing. Every other time, it's people. And I should have thought harder about that at the start, but we got it done. What I learned is you just have to keep going, keep being persistent and really focus on what I learned was to tell the story and tell the amazing story of where we would be and keep painting the picture of, I know this is hard, but think about when we get to the end. Think about what we can do in the market. Think about how much better we'd be when we're sharing everything. Just did it enough that finally people started to buy into it and I found the champions and they helped me convert others. And eventually we got there. It was fundamentally game-changing for us, but it was a hard, hard road. And I think I could have made that road a little less bumpy. Great. I mean, amazing lesson. Uh, touch, move, and inspires, you know, what I get from that. And a huge aspect of what we do at Disruptive is exactly that, organizational change management. You know, especially these more complex enterprises, you have all these various business units. Sometimes they're at odds, you know, and not like in an aggressive manner, right? But they think they have different goals or different objectives or conflicting objectives. And then you know, after we spend some time with each of them, not only do we find that their objectives align, but we find that they oftentimes have this vision for what's possible. And it's just our job to kind of translate it into a unified voice that everyone can get behind and appreciate. The technology no, it's, it's, works. And it's amazing how often when you, as leaders, we can often think we have to have the answers. And it's incredible when you ask a team to solve a problem with you or solve a problem, like how good their solution is. And the amount of times I've sat back and thought, well, that was better than any idea I had. Right. Remind me, like, ask the team. And even if it sounds crazy, like, you know, when you think about the economic period we're going through, and there's going to be a lot of companies and there's going to be a lot of people asked to push their budgets, right? To contract their budgets, to be more efficient, to do more with less. And I've done an awful lot of that in my career. And again, it's a great example of bringing your team to do that. They will find you solutions that you never thought of. And I think as leaders, we can often think, oh, we have to get every answer and we have to lead through this. And that is true. But you don't have to have every answer and you can, teams can really help you. And in periods like this, where the economic environment is getting more difficult, go to your teams. They want to get there as well and they will help you. And I think we can sometimes forget that as digital leaders. A hundred percent. So want to talk a little bit more about your current role, Chris, but we'd like to take a pause and ask favorite book, either that you're reading right now or all time dealer's choice. I tend to reread books, which... My wife does not understand. She can understand why I would read a book more than once. And I like to reread again and again. At the moment, it's the one I'm reading. It's also the book I'll say is one of my favorites. I love books that make you think kind of longitudinally about what you're doing versus a, well, this is how you go about, say, digital innovation. Or this is how you go about using data to solve problems. Those are interesting, but I find more interesting and more conceptual books around, here's something that's in a different industry and how they solve the problem, because it makes you think, well, how would I apply it? So get to the question and point, my favorites are, I really like the series on constraint theory by Goldratt. So if you've read like The Goal or Critical Chain or It's Not Luck, 
primarily his books are written as stories, as fables, but they focus on constraint theory and how you use it to optimize systems. And I find that the theories in those books apply again and again. And I've used this ever since like 2000. You can use it for optimizing software. You can use it for optimizing teams. Whenever we find ourselves as a team truly constrained and we don't know how to get enough work done, I tend to reread those books and think very hard about what are the constraints in our system and how do we, do we elevate those constraints to release more throughput of the entire system. And again, a very common problem is siloed execution with optimization and silos. And then you find your end-to-end throughput isn't good enough. And I think these books have a lot to say on how you take an end-to-end process and elevate it to create more throughput, whether that's in the books, it's about a manufacturing process first, the next one's about a software process, but it really applies to nearly anything. So I find those are great books to reread. And every couple of years, I sort of forget the lessons and I go back and and learn them again. Love that. You know, I've never read the series, so... It's a little esoteric. Not many people people go around and say, well, you know what? Constraint theory is what I want to read on the train home today. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I take your advice to heart for sure. So Chris, let's talk about your vision for CDNR as it's derived from the overall mission of the organization. Tell us a little bit about that and maybe some of the initiatives that you guys are working on. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been a journey. And I like to say we're in this year is sort of phase three of the creation of this function. Phase one was just me. And it was me learning about private equity because I predominantly worked on the West Coast and didn't have much of an idea what it was and learning how to operate within our company. Phase two is as I started bringing in some really great people and we started ramping up how much we could do in the portfolio. And phase three is where we start taking all those lessons and really focusing on how we generate value. Because although I think your listeners might think, well, hey, how could private equity be like operating in a company? And obviously I've done a lot of both. You get all the same problems. Like how do we focus enough on the big things? How do we focus on what matters? So the vision is to really be able to focus all of our efforts on where we can add the most value to the portfolio, whether it's helping get the right deals or helping de-risk or accelerate our investment thesis. Within that, we do a lot of, we're a really small team. Like I've, it's really funny for me. I've gone from teams of several thousand people to like, there's three of us and we're back to add a fourth in London. That's a huge deal for the company, but we're very leveraged. We use advisors a lot. So it's what we're really focused on now is how do we set up programmatic systems to solve common problems we see? And it doesn't mean you won't tailor them to the situation, but we have a lot of portfolio companies that want to improve data and analytics. They're building a platform. They want to get end value out of it. And I see enough of that where you spend a long time getting to a similar answer that we're like, okay, perhaps we should create a digital accelerator around this that can package up likely solutions, sector and subsector optimizations and models and analytics that can help you find value quickly partners that can execute it and execute it with high reliability at much faster time to value. We're building these accelerators so we can go in, diagnose what's going on with the company, and then help bring value to it much more quickly. And I think for everybody in the current financial context that we're going through, over the next couple of years, being able to accelerate time to value, whether you're a portfolio company for private equity or you're a public company, accelerate time to value and certainty of return. Because if you're going to go get your CFO to invest, You better kind of know what you're going to get out the other side. You better deliver what you think you are. So we're very focused on programs that can accelerate that. The other thing we're spending a lot of time on is, look, we have roughly 40-ish companies in our portfolio. Incredible staff at those companies, right? They can contain fantastic people. Again, it's that don't solve all the problems yourself. So working very hard with communities. We have a CIO community. We have a CISO community. We have a data practitioners community, a client practitioners community. It's bringing those groups together so that they can help each other. So they know how to reach out and who's solving similar problems. So it's how can you take a group of companies and really leverage all the inherent strength to do better overall? So sort of accelerating digital, 
bringing to bear like that wisdom of crowds to accelerate digital. Those are a couple of pieces that we're really looking at. This is the next one's very specific to private equity, but it's how do we really go from evaluating the company intelligence all the way through to value creation as smoothly as possible? So not only are we saying, hey, this company is good, it could fill a thesis, here's opportunities to use technology to improve that thesis. And let's make sure that we go from doing diligence to signing to closing the deal to starting with the management team. Let's make that as smooth and as fast as possible and understand what kind of return we'll get from doing it. So those are three things we're really trying to do. And the last is just act globally. We've just hired a new one of us in London, attached to the London office, but now they've got the support of a global team. So it's how do we take all of our, we're all sort of like 30-year veterans. How do we take all of our scars, our knowledge, all the things we've done and put them together to help each other do the, the very best job of those three things we identify? Very cool and unique. I don't think we've had someone in your role on the podcast yet in private equity. And to that end, what are some of the biggest challenges that you guys are facing today? I imagine some are similar to what everybody's facing, but just curious, maybe you could let us know. I think a lot of them are very similar. If you look at the ones that are probably most relevant, there's things that are private equity related around what debt markets are doing, et cetera, that most of your listeners would be very uninterested in. We geek out on it. And my financial colleagues blow me away with their knowledge of this stuff on a daily basis. But if I think about things that more in our companies, I think it's a lot of the similar struggles that everybody has. So it is about focus. How do we spend our time? How do we get that management team to spend their time? How do you fund the right initiatives and how do you create space for them and make sure that it really is going to add value? And one of the big challenges we see, and I think it's very easy in companies with a technology core or where tech can writ large can help the company. It's very easy to focus on that tech. And I try to tell people like two things. One, it's just a tool, just like any other tool. Yeah, I've spent my life doing it. It doesn't mean it's a special, it's a tool. The second one is the technology is generally the least interesting part of the solution. And I don't mean literally tech's not interesting, but I mean, when you think of all the challenges you're going to have, technology will not be the one that finally gets you, right? It will be people. And generally what focus on what is the value you're trying to return, not the technology that's going to do it. Once you focus on the value, think about, if you solve the technology problems, how do you actuate that in the company to really drive differential results? So that means things that are difficult but sound quite boring, like business process change, human change management. It's about taking the results of whatever you've done and embedding it in the tools and processes people use so that they can execute. Now, I've seen a lot of big public companies really struggle with this, where they will have a very technology-driven project, and they will come back and say, well, I'm, I don't understand. Where's the value? And often what they do is double down on the tech. It's like, no, that wasn't your problem in the first place. The problem was you really either didn't understand the problem set and levers, or you didn't work hard enough on how to actually actuate all of that through the company and drive change. And so that's what we have to focus on a lot is, sure, it's the focus, getting space, getting the funding, but then it's, how do you take all of these parts of a company that are super busy and get them to act in unison to really make a change? Now, technology may be the key enabler, but people are going to be the execution engine more often than not. It makes total sense. And I mean, there's been multiple times, but one that sticks out in my mind, company makes multi-million dollar investment into a new CRM. It just sits there for years. They have like handfuls of people using it. They didn't have any processes around it. And it's a failure, right? That's a great it, example, by the way, when people are, hey, we put in a new CRM. It's going to be awesome. It's like, fantastic. How did you configure it? Did you really look at your sales process and pipeline? It? Oh, yeah, we, we did some of that. What's happening? Well, nothing. Why is nothing happening? Well, I can't get the salespeople to input any data into it. Like they go on an opportunity call and then they just write notes in their book and they go home kind of thing. It's like, okay, so that wasn't such a successful project if you think about it end to end. 
And you really have to think about it end to end. Right. And it's all about the data, right? So if the data is not getting inputted, it's just a empty shell software. What about some of the best practices, Chris, that along this journey, you and your team are following? There's a number. I mean, one of them is exactly what I've just said. I won't go into it. We've just talked to in depth. But one of our best practices is start with the business problem, start with the opportunity, start with the value, and think right from the beginning about how are you going to drive this across the company? What is going to be the change management system? And that's like the first question we'll ask the vendor. And I would suggest everybody does this when, let's say you want to put in a data platform or you've got a data platform, you want to get more value. Like the first thing to ask a vendor isn't about technology. It's how will you help me drive a successful end-to-end outcome with this? What are you going to do? Or what do I have to do? Because often people don't talk about it. So one of our best practices is realize humans are going to be in that loop. Not every case, but virtually every case. And start thinking about that right from the beginning. The second is just, again, to align, focus on the value, not on the technology. Let the technology come from your solution to deriving that value. The third is you can probably never spend enough time understanding the problem. That's a little bit, you don't want to get into sort of analysis paralysis, but extra time understanding the problem truly will really help you in a solution versus what looks like good, fast effort of jumping in and saying, well, we're going to go in this direction. And everybody gets excited because, wow, you're so action-oriented. And it doesn't quite hit that state. And we have to be especially careful because we hit so many industries and so many sectors in those industries. We have to really take the time to understand what a company is doing, what they're trying to achieve. And if you work in a big company, it's exactly the same. Don't assume you really know the motivation of, say, one of your sales teams or a business management team for a line of service or a line of business. It might not be what you think. So you can never ask why enough. So we're trying to, you know, one of our best practices is, is keep asking the why and try to get really down to what's happening. Another best practice is, Make sure that whatever you're doing, try to make sure that you're doing after action reviews on it. Try to make sure that you're, you've got a continuous learning loop because that continuous learning loop will probably have more impact on your final success than a genius idea at the beginning. I think those are some good general best practices we have. And then the last best practice for us, and this might be a little specific to us is for people like me, I especially have to learn this one. Don't do other people's jobs for them. And this is a great one when you have to learn this as a manager, right? It's so tempting to do people's jobs. Not because you're a micromanager. It's just like, oh, well, you know, hey, they're really busy and I could help. And yes, you can help on a lot of things, but you probably shouldn't. You should coach that person to do it, give them a shot at it. And we have to absolutely remember this when we deal with a company. We are not the management team. And if we are to jump in and do somebody's job, and the same for a manager, a couple of things happen. One, you're very not leveraged. Whether you're a leader doing somebody else's job or you're somebody like us doing a job that somebody should be doing inside a portfolio company, you've just lowered your leverage considerably. The second one is, they won't own it. You'll own it. And that's probably not the outcome you want. So the final best practice for us is we cannot, no matter how tempting, do the job for the company. We have to work through them. And that takes some patience and takes persistence as we were talking about, but you get such a better result. Yeah. It's always good for me to hear and rehear because in my role, I'm guilty of that. And you know, it's easy to lead people and at kind of a macro level and think it's easy even to just manage people, but to really hit that sweet spot where you're coaching and mentoring and it takes some effort. And for me, it's learning from people who had gone before me as to how they did it, reading books, so on and so forth, but not scalable for me to do yeah. my team's job. You also um, have to be really careful about if you're in any position of power, observations can look an awful lot like sort of commandments. And where I learned this, I'll say a story quickly. When I was in video games, I was in Bay Area in 2001 and had three game teams. And I'd go around and I'd see what they were doing. The artists would want to show off their work. 
now I go around one team and doing great stuff and I'm still giving them some compliments, giving them feedback on the art style. I think it's all good. A day later, the director of that team is like in my office shouting at me like, why did I redirect his art team? Why are they now doing the wrong thing? I'm completely confused. And as I thought back, I realized like, oh, I was just observations. I didn't expect you would do what I was talking about. And I think you really have to learn that, that when you have positional power, you have to very much carefully couch what you're doing. Like, I'm about to tell you something. Please do not act on it. Go talk to your management. I'm just going to give you an observation or give you feedback because you asked. I find two things. One, I have to learn that. The second one is when you become senior, you're likely to have to have that conversation with your CEO at some point or your president, whoever you talk to. And it's a really uncomfortable situation. And I think you absolutely as a leader have to do it. Otherwise, there's no way to effectively lead an organization if people are tasking sort of around you because you'll, again, you'll diffuse the focus and you won't get anywhere. Sorry, a little bit off topic for your question, but it's one that I always try to keep in mind. No, I love that. A little bit of a different direction now, but wanted to know what are some of the most, and we talked about how innovation is not just technology, right? So clearly, and especially in a lot of the industries we serve right now, healthcare, financial services, a lot of people process methodology type issues that we're looking to solve first, and then look how the technology serves as a tool to support that mission. That all said, what are some of the most innovative technologies that you are either working to implement in the portfolio now or have on the roadmap for the future that you're excited about? Things we're implementing right now, we have a lot of focus on digital process automation. And that's a field where you know, it can go from relatively simple bots all the way up to AI decision models, et cetera. And I think that's an area of optimization that a lot of companies are going to have to lean heavily on especially to empower their humans. In this environment, you're going to have to get better utilization out of the things that humans are really good at. And although they could be quite good at shuffling tasks around, it's not really the best use of us, right? We're better at doing more creative things. So I think that optimization and then data and analytics, and although it's been around for a good while, I think that is a very fast-moving technology base. And a couple of implications that we're all dealing with with that is, one, generally a lot of people's questions end up at the same solution, or a lot of people's sort of opportunities end up at the same solution. So again, the solution set, there's a lot of things out there that can roughly do what you want. And so think about the problems, not the solution. The other thing that's pretty exciting though, is I think AI being applied to data ingestion and preparation and normalization and drawing semantic values out of data streams is really important because that's one of the hardest problems with data-based projects is getting a useful cleanse set of data to work on. And then there's so much going on with models and model training that that's actually becoming, I think in many ways, it's a less interesting part of what everybody's doing. The feature selection is, but at the other end, that there's so many good models being built and that's a very fast evolving field. So I think the exciting thing is, although we've had data and analytics and AI and ML for a while, I think it's starting to get to a point where it can become generally useful for companies that don't have a huge tech core to make use of. We're looking to leverage both of those as we think about how we can help our companies. The next one is, we're all talking about it at the moment, but large language models and chat GPT is one of the first things I've seen that I truly believe will be transformational. By transformational, I mean, it will destroy business models and it will create business models. And there's a lot that I've that have come up that people have talked about that I'm, I've said this to a lot of people, this will probably not make me very popular, but I am not a particular fan of blockchain. I think that I don't mean it isn't a super clever thing. I just think for the actual problems most businesses have, it is not a solution. In fact, it's actually a solution for problems that virtually nobody has. And I've seen a lot of teams go off and spend a lot of time doing something in blockchain they can do a much easier way. And the vague beneficiary idea of distributed responsibility and accountability doesn't even match the business model that people do it. So, so blockchain, not so much. 5G, 
it's great, but I don't think it's the world beater everybody said it was. Edge computing is interesting. It's been around a long time. People say it's going to change everything. I don't really think it is. I think we've had edge computing for a good while, and you can more at the edge or less the edge. I, those things are all kind of necessary, but not sufficient for like that true disruption. Large language models are truly disruptive. They will disrupt code. They will disrupt how we deliver services. They will disrupt how we understand information. And so that's one where I don't see us jumping on it in our portfolio right now, but I think it's one we have to truly understand and learn how to leverage. And you're kind of going to have to dig into it because it's moving so incredibly quickly. You know, when you think about GPT-1 and where we are now, which is sort of 3.5 with ChatGPT, like it's incredible what's happened. That's the one that I think we really have to keep an eye on. And then in general, we just have to keep understanding the cyberspace and how AI and machine learning is going to be applied to both sides of offense and defense. And, and I think we've seen it a lot on defense for a while. And now the offensive side, the hackers, they're starting to use it a lot more. And large language models may well play into that in terms of generating variants and generating code that becomes very, very hard to understand how to defend against or how to recognize those signatures and, and recognize the behavior. So I think cyber will be, an, it has been an ever-escalating war. That is a trend that we have to keep continuing. We put a huge amount of effort on it across our portfolio. It's something that we, right up to the top of our company, spend a lot of time and energy on. So much you just said right there to unpack, but I totally agree with everything you said about OpenAI and ChatGPT. Kind of, I think it's going to be incredibly disruptive. I also would say that understanding the problem, the data on the front end, how to clean that data, that is a huge piece of it because I believe that with these platforms, we're going to see more and more models commercialized quickly. Like I think that mm -hmm. the fact that they spent all the time making chat widely available, I mean, is just going to create a much more aggressive market for those services and make it much more accessible to businesses like in the mid market, right? And kind of SMB even, like if they can get there, of course, but... I think Google just made a $300 million mm -hmm. investment I saw this morning into another platform. So I'm excited to see that. And there's companies that I know that have built their livelihood on these models and these bots that have just become completely obsolete, basically. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with that in the coming weeks. And all tears, right? You can think about something like just market research. What is market research in a world where you can scan all the information that's connected and then produce semantic insights about it and do it very, very quick, like in microseconds. Like that's a fundamentally different world than we've existed in. Now, the worry about all of this, I'm so scared about AI, I think it's a singularity, we're all going to be obsolete. But right. it is playing into another constant sort of concern I've had. I used to, when I did postgraduate research into AI, I was fascinated by emergent behavior of systems. Plug together lots of, like the classic life game, you plug together lots of simple things, you end up doing amazing stuff you never thought they would do. And more and more, we're not only connecting things, we're going to put AI as a decision point into those things. And those things are going to be IoT sensors and IoT actuators that can do things in the real world. That is an interesting world to be in because you tend to get feedback behavior loops that you're very much not expecting. Your power distribution grid over here doesn't understand that the feed that it's been looking at about weather actually got corrupted by some other decision mechanism. And now it's making incorrect decisions. It's going to be a problem. And it's not to be alarmist, but there's lots of things right. as we connect our businesses and put automation in place. Safety valves are going to have to have negative feedback loops to try stop things escalating out of control. And I think that's going to be a future set of sort of technology innovation and research that we're going to have to do as we connect and automate systems more and more. Yeah, 100%. I mean, Keith Perry, he's the CIO at, at St. Jude Research Hospital. They're doing a ton of stuff with NVIDIA and, and AI and 
he always has been big on that, that human intervention consistently and the understanding the context and all of that is, is and will be crucial moving forward in order to see those types of solutions add value. But that's the exciting side as well, David. I mean, think about what you just said about healthcare. Imagine the sheer amount of information that exists out there in EHR systems everywhere that a large language model, let's keep on large language, that could actually derive meaningful insights over populations and all kinds of populations. I think this and the advent of sort of AI and ML in the healthcare realm could be a fundamental accelerant on how we improve outcomes for people. I get really excited about that in the healthcare world because I think there's so much data there that we could do, we can do great work with that can change how we think about healthcare and we think more about management and prevention versus just cure. And I think this will be a big part of solving it. So I get, on one hand, you can get a bit worried about like all these interconnected systems. On the other hand, you can look at something like healthcare and get incredibly excited about what these technologies can bring to bear with the information we already have. 100%. I'm personally very excited about that as well. Chris, what about, and this is just a question that came to mind, being that you guys have access to the entire portfolio, I imagine slightly unique relationships with each one of these portfolio companies, but are you able to parlay their data in order to create more global insights on the portfolio or rather even not on the portfolio, but just that insights that will serve to help the portfolio companies themselves? Interesting. So we, we don't really approach it that way. We really tend to approach each company as an individual opportunity. It's, it's actually part of our style is we're very much of what is the opportunity here and what are the things we need to do with you as, as a management team, you as a company to help you be successful. And then you think within that world, the data stays very much within the company. I think what you do learn is you get lots of reps with companies. So you learn techniques that can work and approaches that can work very well, but the actual data stays very contained. And part of that, if you think about what we do, you know, we buy a company, we, we hold it for four or five years, let's say, we try to really grow it. We might right, merge companies together. And so yeah. you kind of really want to manage the, the connectivity of that company because it should be a very viable entity that somebody else can take. It's going to be even better in the future. So we tend to keep that constrained. You learn approaches and techniques, but the data stays very much within the company. That makes sense now that you mentioned it. So now, typically we ask guests the biggest changes they are anticipating in their industry. What comes up for you in your role, either in the industries that you serve within the portfolio or in the private equity world in general? This is fairly localized, but from talking to everybody around the industry, I think we're all seeing the same thing, which is the pace of deal making over the last few years has been incredibly fast, historically fast. And I think now we're all digesting these phenomenal companies and opportunities we have. So I think if I look at the next few years versus the last few years, I think it'll be much more time on that value creation side of the portfolio, which candidly, I mean, deals are great, but I find it very exciting. It's both fun and humbling to work with these management teams and see what they're doing and see if you can help them. And I, myself and my team, we just love helping people, right? The satisfaction when somebody tells you like, hey, that thing you did with us really helped. It's like, that's why we do it. It gets really addictive. So I think we'll see much more focus on that. Of course, deals will still be happening, absolutely, across the industry, but more digesting and making sure that all these investments we've made, we really return value from them. I think that technology writ large, you know, people process technology data across private equity will be a much bigger part of the value story. In fact, often won't be in isolation. It will be another thing we're doing, an approach you would normally take. Now we're going to supercharge it with technology and especially data. So I think it will become a bigger part of how we accelerate the earnings of companies and how we make them fundamentally different companies. And perhaps a way private equity is not approached before. We've always done a lot of carve-outs and standing up new IT systems to create new companies. But now it's more, what else are we doing? We're using a lot of forward-leaning technologies, I think, over the next 
three to five years that will become just an integral part of our value stories. And so, you know, that's why we're doing all the work now, because we want to make sure that we stay at the leading edge of that and are able to take all these advantages, all these technological innovations and use them to solve those business problems and to generate that value. So that's a couple of things I think in private equity. Overall, I think what we're all going to see is it's just like the vector we've seen a constant increasing rate of change of technology, innovation, and capabilities across our systems. Things that we think are hard now in five years just won't be hard. Things that we think are impossible now will start to be tenable. And so I think you have to keep a very open mind in this world. And I think we've talked about it a lot in this this discussion, but something like ChatGPT is a great reminder that you've got to keep an open mind and, and really start thinking about what these technologies could do that would be very different than the you know, How would you use it differently? And you know, for our part, one of the things our team's doing is you, know, you see all the, it's study, everybody does their trends for the year or trends for five years. What we're trying to really do is digest that and turn it into, hey, look, there's all of that. That's great. Here's the three things you should know if you're an industrials company and you have manufacturing of aggregates. Like, take these three things away from what's happening in technology that might make you think differently. And I think what we have to do is really break it down to that sector and subsector. Like, here's the things you would actually do and think about. Not in 10 years, there's going to be X or Y, and it's going to completely change everything. Like the metaverse will change everything. It's like, fantastic. What should you do now to take advantage of technical trends to drive value right now? And then what do you do next year? So I think there's a lot of us that are really looking at, let's get concrete about these things. It's great to talk the big picture, but what do we do with the company today? How do you take a trend? And say, here's three concrete things that you might be able to take advantage of, like this year, to help your company. And you know, that's something I think we'll be doing a lot of. Yeah, love that. We're doing the same. Like so often, it starts with making sure that organizations have that single source of truth, right? Some of them aren't even there yet, right? So let's get there and then start building on that. It's like, uh, hey, we want to do AI. It's like, okay, fantastic. Why don't we look at something unsexy like master data management and find a singular record for your customer so that you can really join all your data, and then you can do AI. You know, it's, hey, we want to go and do language learning. Phenomenal. Maybe we should do some integrated analytics so you can pull together the five ERP systems you've got because we put you together for multiple companies and get a unified set of results that you can act on every day out at the edge of your company. Let's do that first. And I think, you know, never forget that there's these what seem like basic things can change so much business value. 100%. So as we wrap up here, we like to ask if you could go back five or 10 years in time or, or even longer. What advice would you give your younger self? Uh, well, one piece of advice would be tequila is very often not your friend, despite its claims <laughs> to the contrary. I think one of the biggest pieces of advice, because I know myself is, you know, I've learned the persistence thing, I've learned the focus thing, but what I would tell myself is, look, ask why more often and don't assume that your pattern matching is as good as you think it is. Keep asking people why they're doing something and why their customers are doing something and why are you doing it that way? And I think all of us that staying curious would have, there's so many things I think I would have done a little better at or avoid. It got there, but I could have eased the path if I'd really focused on asking people why. And I've noticed the times where I've really done that, say at Comcast, when I was working with the business leaders and really ask them, why did they want something? Like, okay, in video, why did you want to be able to do this particular thing? Like, why did you want to download that, that show at, at low resolution or high resolution? Why was that important for your customers? Just a little issue like that. And you, oh, okay. Oh, you really do know your customers. Now I get what you're trying to do. Oh, there's an even better solution for you. So I just think that I would have gone back and said, like, you don't know as much as you think you do. So you should keep asking people why, because they're probably a lot smarter than you think. That's great advice. And I mean, you're such a humble guy for someone who, in my opinion, had such great success. And it's one of the things that I really appreciate about you, Chris. So thank you again for being on today. It was an absolute pleasure. It's a pleasure talking to you, David, and always appreciate your view on the world and the events that you're putting together and the way you're driving innovation. 
Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.